Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hello, I'm Hadley Heath Manning. Welcome to IWF's Working for Women podcast. I'm Senior Policy Analyst at IWF, and today I'm here with Heather Madden, Advocacy Projects Manager at our affiliate organization, The Independent Women's Voice. Heather has just written a policy focus for IWF on Title IX. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about this policy, which originally intended to outlaw sex discrimination in education. Heather, thank you for joining me today. Hey, Hadley. It's great to be with you today. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, First, can you maybe explain to our listeners exactly what Title IX is and how it came to be law? Sure. Well, Title IX was passed by Congress and then signed into law by uh, President Richard Nixon in 1972. And it aimed to provide equal opportunities for both men and women. And so this is what the law says. It says that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And so when we hear this, I think we can all agree um, that this is a commendable objective, that it's a good thing, that we provide equal opportunities for both sexes. Now, it's interesting because initially institutions could comply with the law in one of three ways. So one, they could show that their participation opportunities for men and women are provided a number substantially proportionate to their enrollments. And so this is essentially a quota system. Uh, A second option they had was to show a history of and practice of expanding opportunities for the underrepresented sex. Or three, they could demonstrate that the interest of the underrepresented sex has been fully and effectively accommodated. Uh, Eventually, however, it became clear that only one path, the first path, was acceptable to the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights. Okay, so when you talk about gender quotas, maybe some of our listeners have heard about, especially I think this is the case with college sports, where if a college has, for example, like my college, I went to the University of North Carolina and it felt like there were 80% girls on campus, but I think there were actually something like 60% female students. And so uh, would that mean that UNC, a a public university, would have to have 60% of their athletic opportunities and scholarships available to female students? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, So with a quota system, it means that institutions, uh, participation rates, but they have to mirror the gender breakdown of the student body, you know, whatever that looks like. And so this began in 1996. um, And this was with a dear colleague letter that was put forth by the Clinton administration. And so this is where this quota system came from. And colleges began to um, implement this quota system because it was the only way that they I could have a safe haven from legal action. So essentially with these letters and this new uh, interpretation, the Office of Civil Rights began uh, prioritizing equal outcomes over equal opportunity. And if you look at the language of the law, I think that the priority, um, it should be opportunity. And so with this strict interpretation, universities really had no choice uh, because if the Office of Civil Rights fines administrators in violation of Title IX, then the university could face costly legal battles and they could lose 
um, access to significant funding. And bear in mind that when we talk about the Office of Civil Rights, it's a huge uh, bureaucratic agency and it has like 650 lawyers at its disposal. So, you know, as a result, we've seen schools go as far as to, you know, completely eliminate men's sports teams to reach this desired quota. Right. And I think that the Independent Women's Forum has been, um, some of our spokespeople have been outspoken critics of Title IX for that reason over the years, because uh, we don't believe in equal outcomes uh, when it comes to public policy. We don't believe that men and women are necessarily going to have the same preferences and same interests when it comes to college uh, extracurricular activities, especially sports. Um, But Heather, I want to talk to you about some of the latest controversies over Title IX because this thing is really evolving. And lately, uh, we hear a lot about Title IX in conjunction with free speech rights on campus and even the adjudication of sexual harassment cases in college tribunals. So um, today, since those are some of the issues that are maybe um, um, most contemporary and and have to do with Title IX, I'd like to talk with you about those. And, and let's start with sexual harassment. Many of our listeners may not be aware that colleges now often use a different standard than criminal courts or than our, our criminal justice system. Can you explain that standard, why that is, and, and why it's problematic? Sure. So uh, so this actually began in 2011. And it just started with some dear colleague letters that were sent out by the Obama administration. And so these letters push colleges to embrace a lower standard of proof in sexual assault accusations. So instead of relying on beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, this principle that's used in our U.S. criminal justice system, uh, institutions began to employ a preponderance of evidence standard. And so that means that you don't have to be absolutely sure that a crime was committed. You just have to be 50.01% sure, which means that there's, you know, 49.99. Yeah, it's like like you think he probably probably did it, so he's guilty. (laughs) He probably did it. (laughs) Exactly. And so, you know, this is concerning to say the least because, you know, the standard of evidence that's used in our criminal justice system, which again is beyond a reasonable doubt, is predicated on one of the most, um, or one of the original founding principles of all legal theory, and that's that you know, the accused are assumed innocent until proven 100% you know, guilty. And so I think it's important that we, you know, be absolutely sure that a person is guilty before he or she is punished for a crime. And so I don't, you know, we, sh- we surely shouldn't be throwing this legal standard out the window. Right. What kind of punishments can college tribunals issue out? I mean, do they fine these students or put them on academic probation? What, you know, can they, can they put students in jail? I imagine they don't have that kind of authority, but uh, they, can, they can significantly change a student's life if, if, if he's found guilty of sexual assault, right? Right. Well, and, you know, that's also what's troubling is that, you know, they have discretion in this. It's not, you know, it's up to them um, how whatever punishment that they see fit. So this can mean suspension, uh, which, you know, if, if you are a victim um, of this, then that surely doesn't seem fair. Or, you know, it could, uh, you know, be taken to the criminal uh, system, of course. But, you know, it's you know just so concerning that they have so much you know leeway, so much you know leverage into making these these decisions. Yeah, especially if it results in expulsion from a college or university. I imagine it's hard for those students to reapply to different colleges and universities, and then they might also be 
seen as a social pariah, you know, if their friends or uh, acquaintances find out that they've been found guilty, uh, even if it's not in a criminal court, even if it's just in a college tribunal with this preponderance of evidence standard, that's still, I imagine, something that would be very hard to cope with if you were wrongly accused and then uh, found guilty in one of these courts. Right. And, you know, it can follow you for the rest of your life. So, you know, this is something very serious that we're talking about. And so it shouldn't be taken lightly. Right. And of course, at IWF, we want to emphasize that when it comes to this question of sexual assault, uh, we understand that there are a lot of cases that may go underreported. And there are some guys who may get away with things that are just heinous and horrific. But then on the other hand, we also realize that there have been some men who are victim of Title IX in this way, I think a misuse of Title IX, um, but it, 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 this uh, policy has problems on both ends. I want to talk a little bit more about Title IX, especially how it's been uh, used to encourage colleges to adopt speech codes. Uh, this, um, of course, affects free speech on campus, but how widespread is this issue, Heather? I don't know if my college had a free uh, a speech code when I was a student. If, if, if they did, I wasn't aware of it. But how many colleges have speech codes or other limitations on free speech, and how does all this relate to Title IX? Right. Well, so it's concerning because today um, any verbal behavior that could be considered unwelcome, which is a very vague definition, uh, can be punished by institutions. And so the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education recently found that more than 55% of colleges today maintain intolerant speech codes that forbid constitutionally protected speech. Um, This is concerning, of course, because the First Amendment requires public universities to protect their students' free speech rights. Uh, I actually graduated from the University of Georgia And if you go to the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education website, it it shows you where your school ranks today on this. And um, and the the speech codes are considered very intolerant at the University of Georgia today. So this is very concerning for me. Um, And, you know, when you look back at these reports, uh, many people point to the fact that this percentage has declined over the past six years. They've been putting out these annual reports for the past six years. But, uh, you know, not so fast because this has largely resulted from the fact that many colleges' speech codes have been rebranded as anti-harassment policies. And so they're not included in this 55% figure. So I would say that the problem, you know, is even worse than we, than we might think. Even worse than that 55% figure that you cited, right? Because that's a, the most recent figure. Right. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's concerning because colleges can be found out of compliance if out of compliance if they fail to crack down on speech that again falls under this vague definition of unwelcome. And so, uh, we've seen so many colleges err on the side of caution and crack down on speech as a result to to protect themselves. Right. So, can you tell us a little bit more about these speech codes? Because I think for some of our listeners, especially if they didn't attend college recently, I mean, I. I don't know if there was a speech code on my campus. I certainly didn't hear a lot about uh, unwelcome speech. That seems like a very vague standard. But can you give us some examples of, you know, things that uh, colleges and universities ultimately have censored um, due to these speech codes? Yeah, so today, many campuses are prohibiting what they call microaggressions. And microaggression is the term for any verbal or nonverbal action that appears innocent but could be considered hostile or potentially offensive to some group. And so, you know, automatically I think, well, you know, 
that's vague, of course. Um, I can imagine any group or any, you know, statement being considered, you know, possibly offensive. So, for example, uh, some campuses consider it a microaggression to ask a Latino American or an Asian American where he or she was born because they claim that it implies that individual's uh, legal status as an American citizen is being questioned. And um, another example of a microaggression is um, at the University of California System Schools, and they've deemed statements like, uh, America is the land of opportunity, or I believe the most qualified person should get the job to be offensive. And so they've included this um, on their list of microaggressions. Wow. Some of those things I think are so harmless, but uh, <laughs> I guess I, I, guess I uh, need to go back to school and learn more about how to avoid micro-aggressing other people. But I can ask a, a, another white student where he or she was born, right? That's, I guess, that's just odd to me that certain speeches, it depends on who you're talking to, whether or not it's a microaggression. That's, uh, that seems that's kind right. of odd. <clears throat> anyway, in, in, your, um, in your IWF policy focus, you explain that uh, censorship or these speech codes can actually harm students. And I found this part very interesting because you cited some research from Jonathan Haidt, who is a psychologist at NYU. And I guess the reason I found this interesting is because it seems ironic to me that these speech codes or these anti-harassment policies are intended to protect students. But it sounds like ultimately they could end up harming students. So how does that work? And how, you know, what's the case that censorship actually harms students? Yeah, well, first, uh, maybe listeners don't realize that uh, censorship can even, you know, extend into the classroom. So professors today feel limited in what they can assign to their students, what they can discuss in the college classroom. So as a result, we've seen many, you know, classic works being extracted from uh, from the from the classroom um, and from being assigned. So, for example, uh, Mark Twain. Um, in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, a classic work has been extracted because uh, people have been offended by it um, and are sensitive to, you know, the, the language used in this work. And, you know, even if a professor does decide to, to keep this work in a lesson plans and students can demand a trigger warning. And so this is an alert that a professor is expected to issue if an assignment, you know, could possibly cause a negative emotional response. And we've seen trigger warnings. Um, if you're watching television and you see the warning flash across the screen that uh, there may be, um, you know, something that something offensive in the show that you're about to watch, we've seen that there, but now this is, um, you know, have, has been extended to college campuses as well. So um, in the coddling of the American mind, when you look uh, when uh, C fire CEO, Greg, Luke Kienoff and uh, Jonathan Haidt, which, who is a social psychologist and professor, uh, they looked at how micromanaging and punishing speech on campus, um, how it affects the students themselves. Because, again, Title IX, uh, the defenders of Title IX um, say that it you know, protects and benefits college students. So we want to look at how, you know, what the actual result of this is. And uh, they find that micromanaging and punishing uh, speech on college campus can encourage rational, um, or I'm sorry, can encourage um, emotional reasoning instead of rational and critical thinking. So this means that students uh, accept the authority of their emotions. They rely on how they feel 
uh, rather than looking at the actual facts of the situation. And so this unfortunately can lead to irrational thought patterns. And these patterns have actually been associated with depression and anxiety. Wow. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, you know, first of all, I think it's a tragedy that some students might miss out on some classic works of literature just because they may offend one student in the class. That seems like a missed opportunity for students to learn about things that uh, so many other generations have studied. Um, but it's also, uh, that's uh, sort of surprising to me that this results in depression and anxiety. But I guess when you consider the way that it may reshape a, a student's brain to rely more on their emotions, then it does leave them uh, without the opportunity to learn about critical thinking, which ultimately I thought, you know, that's what education is all about. That's what uh, especially higher learning is, is supposed to be about. Right. I think as a college student, too, um, you know, I just, I, I just had a funny thought. If all of my professors had to offer a trigger warning when something that they were about to say might offend a conservative student... <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, politically, I'm a, a conservative, and um, I imagine there's a lot of things that are said and done on campus that uh, conservative students might find offensive, but they seem uh, right. le left left without any protection here. Yeah, it doesn't seem to work that way. Uh, no. and, you know, the other thing is is that you know um, when you censor, uh, when you censor, when you uh, rely on censorship, and when you suppress speech, then you're not preparing students for life after college. You know, I know when I graduated, I was a little overwhelmed by, you know, adult life just because it was so different from college. And so I can't, you know, with this escalation of, um, of speech being restricted, I can't imagine what it's like today for, for students graduating because, you know, safe zones, which are places on campuses today where students can, can hide or shield themselves from disagreeable ideas or words, you know, these don't exist in the real world. I, I mean, I can't imagine someone, you know, running out of a board meeting, for example, because they disagree with someone's point of view in the room. Yeah. And that's all facets of adult life. I mean, I think the first thing we think about is, you know, how our boss is not going to give us a trigger warning before he or she dresses us down for a mistake that we made at work. But we also don't have safe zones. We don't really have any censorship in our uh, individual and personal relationships and our marriages and families, you know, when we have to interact with our in-laws or people that we may not uh, find to be the most agreeable people, then, you know, it's, it's true that adult life doesn't come with a lot of these uh, so-called protections. But Maybe we're better for it, Heather, that we uh, missed out on a lot of these things that are taking place on college campus today. Uh, Heather, I want to thank you for being our guest today and for explaining to us how Title IX is now being used uh, beyond what we think of as the traditional gender quotas that maybe ultimately disserve male students when it comes to college sports. But uh, these latest controversies over free speech and the adjudication of sexual harassment cases. Um, can you tell our listeners where they can find out more information, where they can find this policy focus that you've written? Yes. So please uh, visit IWF.org uh, and the policy focus will be posted there. Wonderful. Thanks again, Heather. This has been another edition of IWF's Working for Women podcast. Uh, Heather Madden, Advocacy Project Manager at the Independent Women's Voice has been our guest today. For those who listen, I want to thank you for tuning in. You can find out more about this topic and many others at iwf.org. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.